Hello, and welcome to episode 4 of the Dark Material Podcast, where we cut through into the many worlds of his Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. Sometimes subtly, and sometimes not so much. From female scholars to alethiometers, join us in this read-along journey into the dark. I'm Amy. And I'm Ian, and this week we're talking through chapter 4 of Northern Lights, The Alethiometer. Okay, so in last week's marathon episode, mm. uh, we explore Lyra's life in Oxford, from Jordan College through the clay beds and from crypts to narrow boats uh, of the Egyptians. So despite the frivolity of spitting plum stones <laughs> and getting drunk with her friend Roger, we also meet a slightly sinister yes. new character, um, causing a bit of a dark turn in Lyra's world and the disappearance of children across England. Mysterious. Mm. So the enigmatic narrator unveils one of these disappearances, that of one Tony Macarius, downriver in London, at the hands of a beautiful young woman with dark hair and a golden monkey for a demon. Thank you for adding dark hair in there. Uh, you're, never gonna, you're never going to let us go, are you? <laughs> nope. She has blonde hair in my head, and I shamefully think that's because of the film. Um, the danger then comes back upstream, though, right to the steps of Lyra's Jordan, with Roger going missing. And we end the chapter with Lyra standing before this woman with the golden monkey. Mm. It's a tense end. Bah, bah, bah. It's very, very tense. So thank you all for bearing with us uh, to wait for the next instalment of this exciting mm. uh, exciting story. So yeah, we, uh, we start this chapter right off the bat with some uh, words from this mysterious character. Do I do the voice? Yeah, absolutely <laughs> the voice. Your Mrs. Coulter is great. All right. <laughs> you know, I was reading um, some of the later parts of the book and doing all sorts of voice acting yeah. practice. I- including including <sighs> ones very similar to this voice. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of voices to come, guys. So get used to what's about to happen. <laughs> I hope you'll sit next to me at dinner, said Mrs. Coulter, making room for Lyra on the sofa next to her. I'm not used to the grandeur of the master's lodgings. You'll have to show me what knife and fork to use. Oh, you sneaky, sneaky charmer. To be clear, that's back to me. <laughs> that's my voice. That's that's not a quote, no. So we obviously get a proper introduction to Mrs. Coulter, mm. the name of the lady with the golden monkey. Which, who you just brought to life perfectly, by the way. Thank you very much. This is very disturbing. I don't know if that was her voice. You, you should see the body language that Ian is accompanying this voice with. <laughs> <laughs> Going very method here, really. <laughs> Stroking my lustrous hair. Is that your own fox fur? Or... Yeah, it's red and yellow. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we, we do get more of an introduction to her over time, but what a, what a charming young woman she is. Yes, like she even, really is. Even her introductory stuff, it, you'll have to show me which knife and fork to use. Yeah. Such like, I don't know, like false modesty and mm. it's very sneaky. Yeah, she's immediately sort of like allying herself with with Lara being like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing here. You'll have to help me. I'm mm-hmm. just so, like, you know... Which is just, like, total bullshit, isn't it? Yeah. Total yeah. bullshit. She's very, like, saccharine and kind of nice from the start as well, which is, like, really chilling as a reader, given that you know this is a kidnapper that Lyra's cozying up to on the sofa. Yeah. It's, yeah. Ugh. 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 So, like, disarming and kind of... Ugh. Now, yeah. interestingly... Uh, that's your reaction. <laughs> 10, 12-year-old Ian was much more like, who is this sexy, sexy lady? Particularly because, uh, as we sort of discussed a little bit in the intro episode, 
Actually, I'm going to mention this every episode. Who am yeah. I kidding? Yeah. Audiobook versions. The person who does Mrs. Coulter's voice mm-hmm. in the audiobooks. Oh, my days. What a voice acting crush. Unbelievable. Really? Oh, yeah. Like, I just, I so don't fit. see it at all. What? She's she's very, like, I don't know. I I, I don't know which knife and fork to use. It's very, it's, it's kind of like there's a patronizing edge to it. Only there's at the a kind of. No, I... Mm. Nah, it just gets sexier and sexier over time. <laughs> I like to be that patronising, <laughs> patronising woman. Um, oh, no. But yeah, shout out to Alison Dowling, who did the voice. Alison, right. um, if you want to get in touch at the Dark Material Podcast Ian at gmail.com. Ian is only allowed to shout out due to multiple <laughs> restraining orders. <laughs> uh, I think she would make a lovely guest on the show. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, that's our introduction to um, Mrs. Coulter, who is one of the key characters in the entire trilogy, so... Yeah. Welcome aboard, Mrs. Coulter. Welcome aboard. Um, Lyra asks if she's a female scholar. Um, and I just wanted to pick up on this. This is actually an example of what we call in linguistics as a marked pair. So in the same way that you might say a male nurse or a female doctor, mm. where you're marking a pair um, with something specifically gendered. So she's not a scholar. Mm-hmm. She's a female scholar. Yeah, she's like the shit version of the yeah. scholar. Yeah. Um, and I just want to make a reading here from the book because I think it's so fascinating to see Lyra's, Lyra's perspective. She regarded female scholars with a proper Jordan disdain. There were such people, but poor things, they could never be taken more seriously than animals dressed up and acting a play. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's clear that she's picked up a few prejudices in growing up in Jordan and her very kind of limited experiences kind of unsurprising yeah. really i yeah. suppose it's kind of it's actually now that you were reading that it's it's actually very well written by pullman though because it's it's mm. sort of simultaneously uh, i guarantee that was exactly the attitude of men probably other women children everyone back in whenever this is supposed to be set yeah late 1800s early 1900s kind of time mm. towards female academics towards women in general mm. And yet, despite it feeling quite authentic, there's clearly an undertone of disapproval from the narrator or from the voice of the person writing it. Maybe I'm just reading that into it. You know, uh, it's not like it's not like he's it's not like it sounds to me like Pullman's agreeing with that. Yeah, I don't know. I, Do you know I, what I mean? I, yeah, I see what you mean. I sort of disagree, though. I think it's more that because it's written as something that is kind of a received wisdom clearly a received wisdom something that she's picked up uh-huh. something that she's parroting because she's heard someone else say yes that's how it comes yes. across as not, as to me not not her opinion not in, yeah or not indicative of no. the narrator's opinion exactly. yes i guess so maybe it's just because it's coming from the mind of a child it's like well clearly you've got this view from the world around you yeah mm. and it's okay. interesting that you keep mentioning timings as well i don't see this as set, set in the past i see it as set in a kind of dystopian parallel present where actually there are just yeah, yeah. i just mean backwards whenever i say past i just oh, mean okay. like less progressed <laughs> yes in, on a number of fronts yeah. um, absolutely agree you know yeah so it's this very sad moment where we see that she doesn't really have any wider experience of women she doesn't really have any positive role models and it's really quite tinges this moment with worry then because we see Mrs. Coulter quickly becoming that person. Mm. Uh, So we get caught between her wanting to understand a bigger world and a bigger picture, but also potentially putting a kidnapper on a femininity pedestal, which is... um, Super cool. Yeah, super cool. And even though Lyra's uh, intelligent, she's not at all sceptical of of her glamour, and we see her getting caught up in that as quickly as Tony Macarius does. Mm. So it's... Yeah, 
really, really quite scary. So we find out that Mrs. Coulter is a member of the same college as Dame Hannah, but mostly works outside of Oxford. And it's unclear to me if this means she's a scholar or not, but I personally like to think that she is, and she's just trying to kind of distance herself from the other scholars because she sees Lyra's reaction, Mm -hmm. basically to that. She immediately diverts Lyra and asks her about herself and her life at Jordan. And within five minutes, uh, Lyra had told her everything about her half-wild life. Mm. Um, And I really wish, by the way, Lyra had been here last week to summarise her entire life in five minutes. minutes. (laughs) That would have saved us all a whole lot of trouble. (laughs) We did not manage that. (laughs) No, we tried our utmost. But anyway, there's a lot going on there. Um, And interestingly, she not only tells Mrs. Coulter about the trick with the master's skulls and their demon coins, which so far she's not revealed to anyone else at all, um, but we also see, interestingly and slightly strangely, um, she tells a story about when her and Roger caught and roasted a rook. Mm. Um, now, she told a similar story to Lord Asriel. We didn't actually talk about it in the in the episode, mm-hmm. but she told a similar story to Lord Asriel where she'd suggested that they roast it, and Roger has suggested that they healed it and looked after it, and that was actually what happened. So it's quite difficult to know what was the actual truth here. Mm. I suspect it was that they did actually care for the rook and set yeah. it free again yeah. and yeah at least in my head this is how Lyra thinks she's going to win over this ostensibly yeah, so very glamorous and alien woman by being like oh a boast or a brag or it's definitely a brag yeah, yeah. Or, or just multiple rook anecdotes <laughs> <laughs> maybe she's constantly flitting from you know saving them to murdering them <laughs> yeah that's true there could be multiple yeah. rooks um, so Lyra and Mrs Coulter are sat next to each other at dinner and Lyra spends the whole time only talking to her um, and Mrs Coulter admiringly comments on Lyra's lack of fear in dangerous situations so mm. they're clearly thick as thieves quite quickly we mm. then snap to after the dinner has finished oh just before you move to that oh yes there's one little bit um, that's just an interesting parallel to the whole Tony Macarios bit in the previous chapter mm. um, where when she's looking at Mrs Coulter she quote had such an air of glamour that Lyra was entranced yeah. She could hardly take her eyes off of her. Mm. So Mrs. Coulter clearly has this effect, at least on children, of just sort of awe-struck, glamour-struck, whatever the yeah. right term is. And that's used now for at least two separate characters. You can probably assume all the other children that were housed in the warehouse at the docks were also sort of enticed and slightly entranced, a bit like the Pied Piper mm. um, by Mrs. Coulter. And there is a sort of like mystical strength to how how good she is at this it's yeah. it's quite alarming how quickly we see this working so then after dinner they they retire and uh dame hannah ralph and the other scholar are asking lyra questions about her school and we immediately see lyra's whole body language and attitude change when she's talking <laughs> to these two versus mrs coulter so we get that she looked blank she responds piously uh she sort of calmly and formally corrects herself from responding to something with dunno to I don't know. So we get the impression that she's clearly playing it safe. She's doing what she thinks is expected and mm-hmm. respectful for this conversation, but it's like definitely a polite veneer and she definitely has no interest in yeah. this. Whatsoever. And we've all been there with like your kid surrounded oh, by yeah. some boring adults at a party and you're just like, Ugh. Yeah. You know, when you still when you finally stop having to either talk to your friend or yeah. talk to, I don't know, the cool uncle. Yes. Um And you can see like, <laughs> uh, so I don't want to talk about, I don't know, your boat. Or whatever. What conversation were you know. having as a kid? <laughs> I don't think I ever had a childhood conversation about a boat. 
Yeah, so it's a clear changing pacing, and she's definitely not been on edge like this with Mrs. Coulter at all. She's definitely got mm-hmm. a clearer rapport with her. So one of the female scholars does ask Lyra about... Uh, sorry, her. One, one of the what, sorry? The female scholars. <laughs> <laughs> female. Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, sorry. I, no, what's his no, name? I know, I'll, I'll, I'll correct it. <laughs> one of the shit female scholars. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off, Ian. Um, asks her about whether Lord Asriel has any plans to send her to school. Mm. Um, so they clearly know that Lord Asriel is her uncle. I don't think that's like a secret or anything. Uh, and... Lyra basically is slightly taken aback by this, because I don't think she's ever really thought about school properly before, Mm. but says, no, if anything, Lord Azrael probably has plans to take her north, which is a blatant lie. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But Mrs. Coulter then says, immediately bringing the attention back to her, in a very smooth way, I remember him telling me. Which, you know, is is such a sly, like... Oh, I'm more ingratiated with Lord Asriel than yeah. either of you two other female scholars who are sort of, you know, probably interested. I wouldn't say feigning interest, mm. but you're just so boring and disconnected. It's a slam dunk of a bring the conversation back to me. Ah, oh, 100%. Yeah. And also as well, it's quite an exciting moment for Lyra because this mysterious and glamorous yes. woman is now connected to her uncle, who she also respects and admires greatly. Yeah. Um, and she, she goes on to say that um, apparently her and Azriel met at the Royal Arctic Institute. Mm. And Lyra then asks Miss, if Mrs. Coulter is an explorer. And she replies, in a kind of way, <laughs> I've been to the North several times. Last year, I spent three months in Greenland making observations of the Aurora. Which is such a good humble brag. <laughs> I, I had exactly the same note. I was like, <laughs> definitely humble, humble brag. humble brag. And it's also <laughs> such a well-targeted humble brag to Lyra. Oh, yeah. Well-targeted and also I maybe I'm just very distrustful of this character, but it seems like a targeted yeah, for thing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I just want to pick up on one other thing as well, in that the other two scholars in the room... Um, appear to have been taking away more from this interaction than meets the eye because we get this point about their backs stiffening and their demons sort of shooting a glance at each other, mm-hmm. which Lyra doesn't pick up on, but clearly, well, my personal headcanon is that these two scholars have a similar little catch-up over some brandy wine as the master and librarian <laughs> do afterwards and, like, share all of the gossip about sure. what just happened. It's also interesting that... Um, in this conversation about what she's been observing in Greenland. Mrs. Coulter reveals that she's been observing the same phenomena that Asriel and Grumman were both interested in. Yeah, so yeah. this really piques the interest from a reader perspective mm-hmm. um, because she's definitely involved in all of these heretical ideas mm-hmm. and very mysterious concept around dust, potentially. Yeah. Guys, book title, Northern Lights, probably important. <laughs> <laughs> Go the Aurora. It will keep coming up. Don't think it's just a passing title. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so with this point, uh, Lyra is basically caught harpoon liner sinker, if you will. Thank you for <laughs> nice, that. Nice. <laughs> that was it. Nothing and no one else existed now for Lyra. She gazed at Mrs. Coulter with awe and listened rapt and silent to her tales of igloo building, of seal hunting, of negotiating with the Lapland witches. Yeah. It's the first, first reference we get to witches as well, by the yeah, way, which interesting. is interesting, mm. because we did not know that they no. existed in this or world. Or do they exist? We still don't know if they we exist. We still don't know. Mm-hmm. Could be if... a term for fishing ladies. <laughs> <laughs> nice attempt at, uh, yeah, interesting disguising of plot there. <laughs> no, no idea. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
So yeah, Lyra's clearly completely besotted now with Mrs. Coulter. She's got the magical stories from the North, which is obviously Lyra's mm-hmm. favourite place. Um, the two other scholars during this time were told to say nothing, um, which... Were told to say nothing? What do you mean? We are told that they oh, say right, nothing. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. So who interjects and goes, shh, you two, shut up. Don't worry. No, I know you don't pay much attention to key plot points here, but that... <laughs> Lord Asriel bursts in and tells them to shut the fuck up. Shut up, you females. <laughs> um, yeah, so they say nothing throughout all of this. Mm. And again, this is again just my headcanon of their little catch-up session after, but I definitely think this is more Lyra's perspective of dismissing them as having nothing to say than necessarily that they're not listening avidly to everything that's been Oh, uh, I don't know. Said. It could also be like the situation where you've gone to a party and basically everyone else there is either, I don't know, in a band... Um, you're surrounded by actors, musicians, successful artists, maybe the occasional, I don't know, Nobel laureate or something. And you're like, ah, oh, I just have a normal job. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, st- I still feel like they're sponging up information. Yeah. Could could be either, could be either. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's just think about this for a minute before we move on. Mm-hmm. So Lyra is firmly under the sway of a woman who we know is systematically kidnapping children, mm. which is obviously a great, great turn of events for her. Uh, we know that she has this very sweet act um, that's basically a front for wooing people into trusting her, mm-hmm. as we've seen with Tony Macarius. Um, she's studied the same phenomenon as Lord Asriel, which, let, let us remind ourselves, is heretical. And she's on good terms with both Asriel and presumably the Master of Jordan College, who is also very influential because she's been invited yeah, for this yeah, dinner. Yeah. So within a very short time, we get quite a rich picture and there's also a lot going on here with this character um, Mm. underneath the surface. Yep, 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 yep. Um, So they continue for a while until the end of the meal when the master asks Lyra to stay behind a while and wait in his study while he says goodbye to the guests. When he joins her, he, quote, sits down heavily Mm. in his chair and basically from this point on we get the sense that he's slightly weary and defeated or tired um, he's not exactly jumping up and down, being yeah. like, oh, what a great dinner. <laughs> Isn't Mrs. Coulter a delight? He, yeah, he's definitely dejected and downtrodden. Yeah, and it's clear to us outside of Lyra's bubble of admiration and exhilaration that something about this whole situation is weighing heavily on the master. Mm. So he asks if Lyra enjoyed speaking with Mrs. Coulter, mm-hmm. agreeing that she is, quote, a remarkable lady. Yes. To which Lyra replies, she's wonderful, She's the most wonderful person I've ever met. <laughs> With total genuine enthusiasm. Is that a good Lyra voice? <laughs> that was a very good Lyra voice. I tried and not again... to become Mrs. Coulter because I was like, well, that's just weird. <laughs> and again, I wish you could see the body language. There was much uh, much blinking and, and eyebrow raising. And, and much hand-wringing. Much hand-wringing. Yeah, it was yeah. beautiful. But the uh, despite Lyra's sort of wide-eyed enthusiasm, mm. or childish glee, uh, the Master's response and... The, the sort of description that goes with it is slightly heartbreaking. So, mm. uh, yeah, I'll just read this whole bit. The master sighed. In his black suit and black tie, he looked as much like his demon as anyone could. And suddenly Lyra thought that one day, quite soon, he would be buried in the crypt under the oratory, and an artist would engrave a picture of his demon on the brass plate for his coffin, and her name would share the space with his. So... So I know sad. it's I know it's like Lyra's perception, and I think children or young people can often have this impression of people who are older. Mm-hmm. Basically, fuck, you're old, you're nearly dead. Yeah. But I don't think it's any coincidence that 
almost in his hour of defeat, in a sense, that he's giving off this impression of, I don't know, maybe failure or just age, you know, being beaten down by the world. Things have not gone his way in this whole affair with trying to poison Azrael and Mm -hmm. that not working out, even Mm -hmm. though he was trying to produce the lesser of two evils. And then trying to, quote, protect Lyra. Yeah. Uh, from Mrs. Coulter. I think that comes up slightly later, but yeah. it's not exactly a spoiler, it's in this chapter. So, despite his best endeavours to do the right thing, and despite all the cares and concerns of someone who's the head of this like powerful institution and mm. grappling with all these various forces, he's sort of overwhelmed by them. Yeah. You know, it's very sad. It's uh, quite a poignant little description. It is very sad, and it's also especially powerful because it's a very Lyra-esque description of that. Mm. Because I, I think most people would have had that feeling of this person now seems old or is having a moment where you realise that at some point you're going to lose them. Mm. But it's a very Lyra description to have that realisation as, oh, he's going to be in the crypt uh, because he is a master mm. and and I've been down there and I've seen it and, and yeah. that's her relation to it. It's mm-hmm. not that she will lose him in some other way, it's that he will be buried down there. Yeah, yeah. It's just beautiful. Um, but he go- he doesn't die. <laughs> not yet. Um <laughs> He explains that he should have found some time to talk with her sooner, mm. but that while Lyra's time in Jordan has been good and she's shown herself to be, um, or to quote, have a lot of goodness and sweetness as well as determination <laughs> in her nature. And I see this as basically him saying, you're okay, we've put up with your mischief and having <laughs> yeah. to catch you to occasionally yeah. shove you under a shower. It's quite a sweet description, though. Yeah, it's it it's one of those, like, you have been a total pain in the ass, <laughs> but you're not evil. <laughs> um... But yeah, her her time at Jordan must soon come to an end. She mm. must eventually go to school. Mm. Now, obviously, this is Lyra, so she objects, uh, and she sort of gets a bit... Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say tearful, I don't think that's in the text, but she has a little bit of a maybe personal crisis at this. Yeah. She objects that Jordan is her home, and she wants it to remain so forever. Yeah. And she's very childlike in this objection to, you know, I don't want things to ever change, I just want this to be the way it is forever and ever. Yeah, and yeah. it's a wonderful mirroring as well of, bearing in mind that this is only uh, maybe maximum four hours later mm-hmm. from her s- rooftop screaming session, mm. where she's realised that she's not seen Roger, mm. and she's looking around at Oxford and saying this world is changing around her and she doesn't want it to change. Yes. So all of that is all still fresh and all of her ang- anger and anxiety. Even yeah. though she's not reflecting on that specific point now, mm. um, it's a very, very sort of terrible timing <laughs> to have this conversation with the Master. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, the Master insists that she'll need to start learning other things and other skills at some point. Mm. Um, they've taught her quite piecemeal from, you know, whatever basically the scholars around her are experts in. <laughs> yeah. Um, and perhaps the only female company and guidance can provide the kind of education that a young lady in this world needs. Yeah. And and she can't go to a servant's family because classism, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. that just wouldn't do. Because yeah. th- th- those are, like, you know... <laughs> well, they're just common servant ragamuffins. Servant females. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She'd end up with a dog demon, for God's sake, Amy. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, very sad. Yeah. So then after this revelation about um, the master insisting that she needs female guidance and female company, we get this reflection. Sorry, shit guidance and shit company, just to be clear. (laughs) Just make sure we're clear. Ah, you're the worst. (laughs) The word female only suggested female scholars to Lyra, and she involuntarily made a face. 
to be exiled from the grandeur of Jordan, the splendour and fame of its scholarship, to a dingy, brick-built boarding house of a college at the northern end of Oxford, with dowdy female scholars who smelt of cabbage and mothballs, like those two at dinner. The master saw her expression, and saw Pantaliman's polecat eyes flash red. Yeah, not exactly flattering. <laughs> <laughs> um, cabbage and mothballs, love it. No, um, it's a it's, very fragrant description. <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting that Pantaliman has the reaction that he does, or at least her disdain is mirrored so clearly in Pantaliman's, you know, coarse fur coat and that his eyes flash red. Yeah, is that um, anger, do we think? Or kind of like... Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. imagining Lyra sat there firmly, like, pressed back in the seat, arms yeah. folded, crossed, Indignant, almost. frowning. How dare you? And it's been like, ugh, that's fucking awful. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, don't you even attempt to yeah. send me there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Indignance and disdain is how I take it. But it's just interesting <laughs> that, like, uh, her demon reflects that mood. Yes, um, exactly. So clearly and, like, physically reflects it. So, yes. Yeah. And then we see, we see even more. So the master says, But suppose it were Mrs. Coulter. Instantly, Pantaliman's fur changed from coarse brown to downy white. Lyra's eyes widened. Really? Great voice. Great voice. It's almost like you were a little girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so again, like a complete reflection of how she's feeling. Interesting that it goes downy downy white. I don't know. Um, I mean, that is the colour that's reflected in the painting by Leonardo Leonardo da Vinci that we mentioned in the intro Mm -hmm. episode that inspired a lot of pantomiming. It's also just soft and gentle and, you know, maybe somehow pure or... Yeah, it's associated with purity, isn't it? Yeah. But basically, like, oh, that's great, <laughs> fluffy fur for you. It's it's a happy color. Yeah. <laughs> you think you'd go into like a rainbow, rainbow down or something <laughs> like <laughs> like neon light rave. That time it just starts shining. The master also explains that um, when Mrs. Coulter heard about the predicament with Lyra, mm-hmm. i.e., that you know the. Jordan College is looking after this young girl and that they've not really got any way to give her a structured um, and female education. Mm-hmm. And given her, presumably, her acquaintance with Lord Asriel, mm-hmm. she offered to help. Yeah. So the master does explain, like, why Mrs. Coulter's <laughs> even getting involved. It's not, like, a totally random, oh, that woman will do. Oh, yeah, they didn't just um, post an ad for kind of... Yeah, I think there's some like vague woman. link. And I think it's deliberately supposed to be a bit tenuous that um okay so mrs coulter vaguely knows asriel somehow therefore <laughs> she's a great guardian for lyra um, yeah. but nonetheless the the master does give us that little explanation as to why the hell mrs coulter would even bother getting involved mm-hmm. she's just a great samaritan amy yeah we also learned that mrs coulter is a widow um and that her husband died in a tragic accident some years ago we don't get any more information about this as i said i am deeply distrustful of this character <laughs> but uh it sounds it. ominous given that we know about her gobbler hobby really. yeah you know so lyra is clearly ecstatic with this turn in events where the master confirms um makes doubly sure that this is what lyra really wants and then we get this beautifully sad moment yeah so um when lyra is you know obviously brimming over with excitement at the idea that mrs coulter would be uh the person teaching her the master smiles, but the narrator sort of catches something that Lyra is too excited to notice, mm. and basically that the master's smile looks more like a grimace of sadness yeah. than an actual smile. And I think I think there's a vague allusion to, from Lyra's perspective, it's probably just because he's out of practice because he doesn't <laughs> smile very much. Uh, but 
I yeah. love the Lyra version of the narrator. <laughs> it's quite yes. entertaining. Yeah. But yeah. no, clearly the master is not exactly on, on top uh, in this whole situation. Yeah, and given his chat with the librarian at the end of chapter one and how much we know he cares about Lyra and is looking out personally for her future, um, we have to read this as real sadness. Yeah. Given that we know he's done his utmost to prevent all of this. Yes. We don't know why, why specific, what specifically he has against Mrs. Coulter, though. Mm-hmm. Um, Mrs. Coulter then does come back in and outlines some of what Lyra's new life would with her would involve. Yeah, and can I just point out as well, the monkey demon comes in with a grin of imp-like pleasure on his face, which yes. is just... Yeah. Oh! Yeah. It's a bit of a gross demon, generally, but oh, anyway, God, we'll find out more about that. And it turns out Lyra will be learning mathematics, navigation, celestial geography, acting basically as Mrs. Coulter's assistant in her work and in her travels to the north. Oh, don't forget the pretty things that she'll need. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She'll also she's got need to some... present herself well. Yeah, as she... a lady. There's important people, Amy. Just address the part. It's like very sickly and patronising to me. And I don't know... There's also something kind of like Umbridge-esque Very Umbridge-esque, about it. yes. And we get to that like later on in this chapter. Yeah. Um, Umbridge is in Harry Potter Umbridge. Yeah. yeah. I'll talk about yeah. it a bit later, but it's all just very icky for yes. now. Yes, yeah. Um, there's an extra bit here that I just wanted to read through again more because it illustrates how lost Lyra is. Again, in the same kind of Tony Macarius and these other children. So this isn't like in order, but a few, a few snippets. She would have said yes to anything. I can work. I don't mind, I'll go anywhere. I don't mind, I want to learn it all. <laughs> and these are all responses and reactions to stuff that Mrs. Coulter's suggesting. Like, yeah. the things you'll have to learn, it'll be very difficult, are you, are you sure you're up for it? And it almost doesn't matter, like Mrs. Coulter, Coulter could basically say, you're gonna, you're gonna have to poke your eyes out, and, <laughs> and then like throw yourself on a bonfire, and Lyra would be like, yeah, that sounds yeah. super great, I could definitely do that for you. And she's not exactly um, a very biddable character no so it's yeah, she's been again, so strong-willed up to this point like she's not pushed around by anyone but mrs calder has clearly swooped in and just gone female razzle dazzle and she's like <laughs> yes philip <laughs> 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 woman definitely should have written this uh, like that <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah wow so mrs calder then rounds it all off perhaps even anticipating lyra's one remaining source of potential disappointment about leaving Oxford with when you come back to Jordan you'll be a famous traveller which is just like boom okay yeah, even if Lyra had any reservations about leaving the grandeur of Jordan and not being a scholar at the university and all that kind of stuff yeah if she can come back and basically be like better than Jordan yeah oh my god I you can know. just imagine her being like imagine all the urchins and ragamuffins like oh, lord yeah. it over yeah yeah <laughs> So again, I, I interpret that as a very deliberate move from Mrs. Coulter to yeah. allay any remaining concerns that she might be giving up some kind of glory. Absolutely. No. Absolutely. No, no, if anything, it's going to get better. It's very calculated. Um, we get told then that Lyra and Mrs. Coulter will be whisked off on the dawn zeppelin uh, the next day, mm. um, which I think when we were talking about the chapter you pointed out is remarkably quick, which I yeah. hadn't actually picked up on, but, the, well, I mean, I know, but it's quick, but... Yeah, so from the point the in I don't know whatever it is the late afternoon early evening when yeah. Lyra gets told you're having dinner with the master to leaving Oxford, mm. it's like twelve hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know that that to me indicates some kind of urgency that's just not normal. Yeah, like it's fine I guess despite the master's reservations and all that stuff for Mrs. Coulter to you know 
provide help and take mm-hmm. her away for an education that's better than that she'll get at Jordan. Yeah. But maybe over weeks or months. Like yeah. maybe, hey, how do you feel about this? Cool, well, I'm, I'll see you again next week and we can maybe buy some books and then two weeks later you can come visit me and then a month later why don't yeah. you move in with, with me in London? And Not like no... tomorrow morning. Exactly, <laughs> there's no hell. option, there's no explanation given for this. You say you get... Yeah, when you pointed out, I was like, yeah, this definitely mm. gives the impression that there's other wheels in motion to expedite all of this. Yeah. And again, like, like Lyra's age or, you know, the fact she's a child, I think is definitely a part of why this all seems credible to her. Yeah. Like, I don't think a kid would necessarily be like, wait, this is weird. This is a bit quick. Is this <laughs> usual? No. Like, if, if yeah. some perfect explorer character came in and said, hey, do you want to come off on adventures? You'd probably be like... Fuck yeah. Yeah. Tomorrow morning. Cool. <laughs> I have no responsibilities. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't. I think from Lyra's perspective, it's exciting. From everyone else's perspective, or from ours, it's weird. Yeah, it's definitely um, weird. Yeah. Yeah. So Lyra goes off to bed uh, after just about remembering that the master exists for long enough to wish him good night um, and thanking Mrs. Coulter for some reason. Um, so yeah, this is all happening happening so alarmingly fast. Within the space of a few hours, Lyra's found out that the gobblers are in Oxford, had Roger go missing, had her kind of screaming at the sky in her anxiety, met Mrs. Coulter, and is now moving to London tomorrow. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, kind of unsurprising then that after this nice relaxing afternoon, Lyra can't really sleep. Because mm. um, pantomime won't settle, and they're clearly both very restless <laughs> and excited. And he turns into a hedgehog out of peak. <laughs> I love, I love that. that. It's so good. <laughs> it's a good bit of pantomime and yeah. uh, humour there. It's nice. So she gets awoken at an ungodly hour whilst it's still dark uh, by Mrs. Lonsdale, who is um, the woman who looks after her. And Lyra's told she's got to hurry to see the master before breakfast with Mrs. Coulter. So she's kind of described as being on fire with curiosity. Um, she gets instructed to go to the garden and tap at the French window of the master's study. Hmm. And there's a definite sense of quiet urgency, of secrecy, of mystery, mm. of... She's talking in like hushed tones yes. and it's all a bit fraught. Exactly. I don't I don't know if you said this, but it's before dawn as well. It's like still dark and gloomy. Yes, yeah. Um, so Lyra's having to sneak around more or less still under the cover of night. Mm-hmm. Um, she sort of picks it up in her stride really without questioning it, which is quite nice. Yeah. We then get a beautiful description in the still quiet night as Lyra's hurrying down to her clandestine meeting. Overhead, the last stars were still visible, but the light from the east was gradually soaking into the sky. Lyra stood for a moment in the immense hush, looking up at the stone pinnacles of the chapel, the pearl-green cupola of the Sheldon building, the white-painted lantern of the library. Now she was going to leave these sites, she wondered how much she'd miss them. Also, she definitely looked up how to pronounce cupola before I said it. (laughs) I'm assuming I nailed that. Cupola? I don't know. I assume that's like some kind of roof. Yeah. Hang on, audience. To Google. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, well, uh, uh... Cupula is a small dome-like building. Did you just randomly change the pronunciation with no real foundation for that? Zero. <laughs> I just thought it sounded more erudite. You are a pronunciation guru, so we do just have to go with everything you say. Cupula. <laughs> <laughs> Food pods. <laughs> so she taps on the French window, um, as, as instructed by the housekeeper, and upon being ushered in by the master, she's immediately worried that she might not in fact be going with Mrs. Coulter after all, Mm -hmm. which I think is really telling of this sort of mental shift for Lyra from being, you know, proud and uh, buoyed up by being part of Jordan College and the Oxford world Mm -hmm. 
to now worrying that she's not going to be part of Mrs. Coulter's. You know, yeah. there's a shift in her priorities now. And not wanting um, anything to change previously as well. Yes, exactly. To now like, oh God, what if it doesn't change? Mm-hmm. Um, so the master says that she will be leaving and that he, quote, can't prevent it. Mm-hmm. Now, Lyra doesn't pick up on this at the time because she's you know slightly too relieved that she will in fact be going. <laughs> but again, this isn't like... Oh, yes, don't worry, of course you're still going. I just needed to talk to you quickly. Sorry, this is so urgent. No, mm. no, this is... No, no, you are going. I can't prevent it. Yeah. It's far more, like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> then, ah, it's cool, bro. Yeah, he's clearly yeah. stressed. <laughs> yeah. So he's clearly trying to protect Lyra from Mrs. Mm-hmm. Coulter. We don't know why, but Lyra certainly doesn't pick up on it. Um, and he wants to give her something. Something that she must swear to keep secret even, or especially, maybe, from Mrs. Coulter. Mm. Um, So, yeah, you can take this, because this is a big moment. Big moment for me. Um, So the master gives her something called an lithiometer, um, which is, as mentioned before, a key quest item. So Mm. things are really kicking off now. All the setup is done. This is one of the big three collectibles. (laughs) (laughs) So it's described as somewhere between a small clock and a large watch which is just a medium-sized clock, right? No? Small <laughs> clock? Large watch? What's, what's the difference? Sorry, I just realised. What's yeah, the difference between those two I things? I don't know, I guess. But not a pocket watch. But not a pocket watch. Uh, yeah. Um, so it's made of brass and crystal and looks a little bit like a compass. Hmm. Um, but not a golden compass, should we say. Uh, but there's no time to snatch more than a cursory glance before it's uh, bundled away into its black velvet wrappings. Um, we do know, however, I don't think it's a spoiler because we get told that it does this, that alethiometer etymologically means measure of truth. So even though we get told it tells it tells you the truth, um, that's just a little advance warning for all those etymology fans out there. Uh, but Lyra will definitely still have to work out for herself how it works. That's mm. what we get informed by the master. So as... It's also one of only six yes, in exactly. the world that yeah. have ever been made. Um, so it's a rare item, clearly, however luxuriously made it is of brass and all this other stuff. Mm. It's fucking rare. Yeah. <laughs> Six of them. Six, um, ever. Yeah. And this one was presented to the college um, by Lord Asriel, we learn, which is interesting. Mm. Why does he have it? Uh, mm. Why did he present it to the college? All such questions that we don't know the answer to. Um, the master then tries to tell Lyra something about Lord Asriel, but is interrupted both times, which is just classic frustrating kind of um, Mm -hmm. trope of you can guarantee that's going to be the most important information (laughs) but maybe it's the fact that she doesn't know that is the most important information we'll just have to Mm. to see Um, and I really like the master's farewell here so we get this moment where he rests his hands gently on either side of her head um, and she feels them tremble involuntarily when there's a soft urgent knock on the door Um, and then we get this badass farewell which I will let Ian read Mm. Quick now, child. The powers of this world are very strong. Men and women are moved by tides much fiercer than you can imagine, and they sweep us all up in the current. Go well, Lyra. Bless you, child. Bless you. Keep your own counsel. Oh. So good. It's good, isn't it? I love keep your own counsel. Mm. Yes. It's just... I, when I first read that, I guarantee I didn't know what the hell that meant. No. I was like, ooh, death. Still not 100% sure now, but... <laughs> nope. So it's that's really like a good, good kind of motto it? for a house. Yeah. Keep your own counsel. 
Oh, you mean for like not, <laughs> not your personal house, not like our flat? <laughs> we can put that above the door if you like want. A coat of arms thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would be like a massively asshole coat of arms, as in like, don't listen to those other fuckers. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's good though because uh, he's clearly in this situation. You know, men and women are moved by tides much fiercer than you can imagine. Mm. Not everything people do is in their power to control and change, yeah. including him. So sad. Um, there may be an element of apology in this, and warning, and explanation. It's it's really good. Yeah. We like the master, despite you know trying to murder people and stuff. Yeah, and it's interesting. Uh, we see a bit more of that in the rest of the chapter, but reflecting back on Lyra's relationship with him, it's clearly affectionate. She clearly respects him, even though they're not necessarily mm. very close. He's been with her presumably most of her life yeah um yeah i don't know and, and now she's leaving him behind in a very dramatic and quick sort of way hmm. um so yeah lyra then returns to her room uh, her bags have been packed by the housekeeper again everything here is kind of rushed mm. uh and the housekeeper basically says no i've not got any time to put whatever that parcel is in the bag just chuck it in your coat pocket and get going um mrs lundell never has time for lyra no, she, she? she's on it <laughs> she's <laughs> yeah. a busy woman um, and we get this gut-wrenching moment where Lyra suddenly remembers Roger and it's, oh, I don't know, you can definitely feel that sudden tide of guilt that just kind of sweeps over her at this point where she's realised she's not even thought about him yeah, since it's a meeting fish to fry, isn't it? Mrs Coulter. Well, the razzle-dazzle big, big Mrs Coulter. sexy fish. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but then she's carried along by those same ties that the master mentioned and is soon in the Zeppelin to London. So she's really had her life turned upside down and shaken about a bit for good measure. Mm. Uh, there's a really interesting difference actually here in the bit about Roger. So I couldn't actually find in time for this episode the difference in the editions, but I've been making notes for this episode on an ebook version and on the audiobook version, mm. and there's a difference between the two for this mm. passage. So interestingly, in my ebook version, Lyra basically says, Oh shit, I forgot about Roger. I'm mm-hmm. on a Zeppelin now. Yeah. Whereas in the audiobook version, there's a whole bit where Lyra assures herself that she can ask Mrs. Coulter for help in finding Lo- Roger and that Mrs. Coulter will no doubt know some powerful people that can help her to, like, you know, find Roger and the gobblers. Mm. But for whatever reason, that pit bit has been removed. I suspect that my ebook version is an earlier edition because uh. if you recall, we talked about the fair woman being a demon. Yep. Um, in looking into that after the episode where we talked about that, which I think was chapter two. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, no, chapter three, Lyra's Jordan last week. Yes, where they're down in the crypts and one of yeah. the masters has a woman as a demon. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, that was actually something that was only included in an early edition. Oh, uh, interesting. So I actually think that the ebook it might be an earlier edition. So the ebook is maybe like a first edition and the audiobook is from a revised thing. Oh, Quite possibly. Because I was just thinking maybe it was the opposite way around and that, mm. you know, Lyra asking or including this thought from Lyra that she could ask Mrs. Coulter. Yeah. I don't think she then does. Yeah. So I was wondering, I'll just pull them and remove that because yeah. it's then like, I don't know, awkward or strange that mm. it doesn't happen. I think that audiobook version was no, it would make published sense. a bit later though. It would so. make sense if the audiobook was a revised thing because, yeah. you know, that would have been done well after a the book's later. release if that makes okay yeah. mm. alright so yeah just a small point yeah so the scene then swaps to Lyra on a Zeppelin to London 
with Mrs. Coulter, and her sort of wonderment throughout this chapter continues as the landscape rolls by below her, and she learns all about the restaurants and ballrooms in London, the soirees mm-hmm. at embassies or ministries, mm. and the politics of Whitehall and Westminster. Yeah. And I've just got a little point here. I, there's no real further detail, but I'm a little bit like, Whitehall? Ah, and Westminster? What's the distinction <laughs> and the difference? And basically, I think Whitehall is the king, it's the palace, yeah. the, the home of royalty, and Westminster is, as it is in our world, Parliament in the UK, government, yeah. the Prime Minister, Lords, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is a small nod to the fact that monarchy may be more of an active institution yeah. in Lyra's world than it is you know, here, mm-hmm. <laughs> where the Queen exists, but not much more than that. No offence, Queen. You're welcome to come on the podcast. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. Th- let's not dwell on it. But basically, there is a distinction between Whitehall and Westminster, but Whitehall exists and is a thing. Pfft, yeah. Sort of enough said. And it also roots Mrs. Coulter in a very powerful circle, mixing and socialising with the highest echelons of society, basically. And as we know, she's a gobbler. This is also quite chilling, as it kind of has undertones of potentially organised crime or at least that it's whatever she's doing, she's doing it when whilst also being entrenched in the class and power struggles of this particular country in this particular mm-hmm. world. Maybe she's only able to do it because Maybe. she's in these power struggles. Maybe. Mm, Catholic Church. Mm. <laughs> yeah, anyway. So, meanwhile, Lyra is still completely intoxicated with Mrs. Coulter. What Mrs. Coulter was saying seemed to be accompanied by a scent of grown-upness, something disturbing but enticing at the same time. It was the smell of glamour. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, disturbing, but enticing. Yeah, and mm. it's also something that we can see in Lyra's perspective shifting from just a few pages ago, so it's something, rather than, want, as I said, wanting nothing to change, she's kind of almost yearning and eager for this change to come now, so it's got an air of glamour about it. She knows that it's something mm. a bit alien to her, but it's something she's positive about. Yeah. So it's... Interesting. Right. Well, then the Zeppelin lands at uh, somewhere called Folkshall Gardens. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I got very distracted reading around this. Yeah. And I'm about to dive down one hell of a rabbit hole. Good. I think it's interesting, <laughs> but it's not really related to the books. But I'm going to go into it anyway. Because this is one of those other twists on our world mm-hmm. um, that Pullman throws in, a bit like Jordan College doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It's Exeter College. And th- this is another version, so here we go. Interesting. I'm, I was kind of intrigued by this, so just bear with me, people. I'm buckling in, yeah. So this is Vauxhall in right. London, which okay. is, for anyone who's not from London, um, in the sort of middle south a bit of the river, mm-hmm. just south of central London. It was originally named, this is in our, this is real history. Okay, but yeah. Yeah, anyway. It was named after a sort of mercenary called Folks de Brute. That's a very long name. Brute. Oh, it's still going. The name's still going. (laughs) Old French. I'm talking like 13th century French. So I think you may have just lost your position as pronunciation. <laughs> any, any well, look, any French people out there who are confident in the French pronunciation from the 13th century of a British mercenary, good luck to you. Um, there's a lot of vowels in the middle of that. Um, Brute is what I'll go with from now on. But basically, uh, from Folks de Brute to Vauxhall was basically uh, one of those weird quirks of pronunciation over time. Ah. Fox de Brute became like uh, Foxe, Foxeul, 
and then so on and so on and so on. I'm making those up. There's basically a chain of etymology <laughs> from Volks to Volk. Ah. And that, that's kind of how, in our, in our universe, um, Vauxhall got its name. Because this guy had a manor in the area, so it was, you know, Volks, oh, okay. Volks so like an... Hall, yeah. and then Vauxhall got, you know, shortened Vauxhall. to Vauxhall. Vauxhall, isn't it? Yeah, so Vauxhall. Anglicisation. South, South London. It's just Vauxhall's. <laughs> Vauxhall's place, isn't it? <laughs> Hello, London. <laughs> um, but this is where this is where the rabbit hole really begins. Cause oh, you thought, you I thought, thought that, that was a rabbit hole. Oh no! Really. Oh my god! Oh no! So this mercenary, the Wikipedia page is <laughs> like it just goes deep. So he was a sort of lowborn, potentially the son of a Norman knight and a concubine. Mm-hmm. Kind of interesting. He somehow entered into the service of King King John. Right. Yes, the evil bad king from Robin Hood. Oh, fame. that one, the lion one. Yeah, the, right. the one that's a lion the who fights lion. the fox. Yeah. And the sexy female fox who likes yeah, 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 the fox. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I did study history, yes, for everyone asking, yes. Yeah, that's super accurate hi- history provided by Disney. Yep, I, I studied it too. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he, he served under King John towards the end of King John's reign. Mm-hmm. Now, he worked his way up the ranks, becoming John's steward fighting in several battles across England, including taking several castles and, bringing it back to Pullman slightly, uh-huh. defending Oxford. Yeah. That, that was a good attempt, well done. Yeah. <laughs> Oxford's mentioned. Against <laughs> baronial forces. And for those who aren't familiar with English history, nor am I, but basically, as I understand it, <laughs> uh, there was this whole barons versus the monarchy thing, which led to the, the barons being like wealthy landowners, mm-hmm. as opposed to the royalty who obviously ruled the country. Um, and that fight basically led to the Magna Carta, which in a very roundabout way led to the end of absolute monarchy, mm-hmm. the establishment of a sort of non-monarchical government, so, you know, sort of then to democracy in the Western European sense. So yeah, basically this guy was some kind of early freedom fighter, or maybe more like Bronn of the Blackwater from Game of Thrones. That's exactly <laughs> who I imagine, but maybe with more of a, a Frenchy overturn. A French, French Bronn. Yep. French Bron of the Blackwater. Bron de Blackwater. Bron de Blackwater. <laughs> um, Wait, so hang on. So he was fighting on behalf of the... Royalty. Oh, not the barons. No, so in no way was he a freedom fighter, like I just said. <laughs> <laughs> he was a firm suppressor of yeah, freedom. Yeah, no, no. So he was at Bron de Blackwater then, because he was basically with Lannisters. Yes, no, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. Right. Um, so Game of, Game of Thrones reference on point. Actual, actual attempt history. to do history. Poor. Poor. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from the Disney bit. Um... <laughs> But he was given a castle and an earldom through marriage. Uh, and then, oh my god, he's definitely Bronn. Yeah, I know. I know, right? And then he acted as the executor of John's will when he died. Like, pretty important dude. From yeah. the low-born son of a knight and a concubine huh. to the executor of a king's will. Pretty good progress. Mm. But then he moved to be Henry III, the next king in line, uh, Henry III's right-hand man. And by Christmas of 1217... He held high sheriffdoms in Cambridge, Oxfordshire, Buckinghamshire, Northamptonshire, and Bedfordshire. What? All the shires. A boss. He's got all the shires. All the shires. He had not the Yorkshire, hobbits though. in. in uh, no, not Yorkshire. But who wants Yorkshire? The, the best shire. Fuck off. Mm, I mean, Fuck everyone right from Yorkshire just kind of goes, it's the biggest. <laughs> like, well done. Sorry, we seem to be having technical issues. We can no longer continue the podcast. <laughs> uh, I can just hear. Female bashing or Yorkshire bashing. <laughs> I can hear a roar of anger from the north. Um, yeah, he then fights all over England, fighting around the world, um, gaining land and castles uh, until the English get a bit sick of that kind of thing, where they basically go, you can't just 
like take the castles that you defeat in battle <laughs> right and like none of that please right and so they basically demand that these castles are returned to the king or to the church or someone um other than the guy who just besieged it mm-hmm. he was eventually then exiled um after the king murdered his brother his brother right henry the <laughs> oh my god divorced and sent to france <laughs> Where he was immediately imprisoned because he was fighting the French when defending Oxford under uh, King John. This guy can't catch a break at this point. No. The Pope intervenes because at some point in this life, he went on crusade and was a crusader. <laughs> so he had like the backing of the church. And then he goes to Rome because, you know, he needed somewhere to finally catch a breath. Wrote a book blaming some English guy for all of his ills. <laughs> decided to go back to France. Then he nearly gets killed. Because the French still don't like him. Yeah. So he returns to Rome again, where he died at the age of about 46 from eating a poisoned fish. (laughs) (laughs) What what a guy. What an end. Really interesting, right? What an end. Yeah. Uh, So anyway. Poisoned poisoned by who? uh, No, the fish. It's just a poison, like bad fish. Not like, not like sinister, just food poisoning. (laughs) (laughs) Bad way to go. Bad way to go. Oh, I imagine there was a lot of yeah, vomiting and shitting. Yeah, in like early 13th century Rome, oh, just no. shitting yourself to death. Oh, no. Not the best for no. folks de brute or brute. Um, so anyway, yeah, Vauxhall in London, in a roundabout way, gets its name from this dude, um, <laughs> with various pronunciations that get, that get us to Vauxhall. The one bit that, in all of that reading, right. is actually relevant to the book, okay. so I'll bring it back in. Um, well, hang on. Why, why, why is Vauxhall named after him? You might have explained that. He had, uh, he, oh, he had a big manor house palace in that bit of London oh, called okay. Falks Hall, which you know, got oh, okay, okay. concatenized down to Vauxhall. Yeah. Um, but in the mid-1700s, that part of London mm-hmm. was famous, I think across Europe, if not the world, um, for its pleasure gardens where basically parties with all the noteworthies and wealthies of oh, Europe would congregate yeah. in all their finery for the heights yeah. of fashion and arts. And that's very much the way that this part of London is portrayed in Mrs. Coulter's um, lifestyle. Yeah, there. that's absolutely The soirees true. and the ministries and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So there may be a vague hint to, you know, the reason Pullman chooses this bit of London being that it used to be the centre of you know, high art and high society. Mm. And Mrs. Coulter is ingrained in that, as well as political power, royal power, yeah. church power. There's yeah. this whole arts and influence sphere as well. Yeah. So there you go. Well, fascinating. Mm. I, on the other hand, had Lyra and Mrs. Coulter arrive at the flat in my notes. So, <laughs> well, similar similar reading, I think. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you not go down the rabbit hole, Amy? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, accurately, they do arrive at the flat. They do arrive so, at the flat. <laughs> uh, and this is kind of Lyra's new home, basically, mm-hmm. uh, which is a weird revelation. Um, and it's in the very centre of London and very plushly decorated. So Lyra is aghast at the flat itself, being used to only the, quote, grand and stony and masculine beauty of Jordan College. She's completely taken up with the sheer prettiness, the delicacy, the femininity of this, this space. I mean, to me... It sounds gross, I'll be honest. Interesting. And very the sort of kitsch and kitsch. Yeah. <laughs> but equally, to be fair, it's probably what exactly what I would have thought was amazing at that kind of age. So, I've made a note in big red bold here. Mm. Uh, I know that like gender and identity and all that stuff is very like zeitgeisty now and uh, hell no am I gonna get embroiled into that whole debate. But <laughs> out of curiosity, when you were 
How old were you? You say you're like. I I think originally I said I was ten, but I must I must have been younger. Yeah. Yeah. But like that kind of age, obviously a young girl, preteen. Yeah. Do you remember what you thought of all of this description of, you know, all the pretty things, the nice objects, the little mask, the masculine, the little ornaments <laughs> and very butch shepherdesses yeah, yeah. on like all of the. Yeah, because a flat things. basically sounds like it's littered with trinkets and delicate stuff. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't remember exactly because I think. We know at this point that Mrs. Coulter is not a not a goodie, shall mm. we say? Um, but yeah, I think at the time when I would have been reading this, this is all stuff that I would have thought was cool and pretty and nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't a very feminine kid. Mm. Uh, I have two older brothers, um, so similarly to Lyra, I think a lot of stuff about like hand-me-down clothes that uh, kind of old boys clothes and Mm. being a bit of a tomboy and stuff that kind of resonated with me but I did also kind of put femininity stuff on a pedestal a little Mm. bit so I don't remember a specific reaction to it but I would guess that um yeah I was probably like oh yeah sounds nice Mm. sounds lovely and comfy and you know pretty and and delicate and much nicer than the place with the shit bath that she was before (laughs) <laughs> yeah, 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 because yeah, I, I distinctly remember my first, like I do, I do remember my reaction to this yeah. just being like, oh, it sounds fucking horrendous, <laughs> <laughs> frilly shit everywhere, all surface yeah. covered in pointless ornaments that don't do anything, and I can only imagine like the crappy rose-cheeked porcelain figures <laughs> that, as a little boy, I would have just been like, oh, oh, so oh shit. this is just a pile of garbage. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, well, it's very much, and I still have that reaction. But, yeah. I just think, God, it would be. F- you couldn't move. You wouldn't be able to use any of the tables for anything. <laughs> Fucking rubbish. Although, and I know, I know you'll you'll come onto this. My feminine streak still to this day, of liking nice bathrooms and bath time. <laughs> um, oh yeah, the whole bath description the sounds bath fantastic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting because I hope this isn't too much of a spoiler, but we don't get any very feminine characters in the entire. In the entire series, really. That's really Mrs. Coulter is the only high glamour feminine character that we get. And as we know so far, she's not exactly entirely good in her actions in terms of kidnapping and stealing mm. children. We don't know what her motivations are, but we know that she has some interesting hobbies, should we say? Maybe we are going to have to bite the bullet and do a bonus episode on like gender or something because that's really interesting I'd never thought of that before yeah there's a lot of powerful women in the series for sure yeah but they are not feminine no I'm trying to go through them all in my head and like yeah not one hmm I don't know okay let's circle let's circle back to that I don't want to yeah. just give us an endless list of bonus episodes but that could yeah. be interesting and, and, and to be honest I don't know how much of this is my prejudice or how much of this is actually like a, a the fact that this femininity is specifically tinged with this character Mm. and that she's not set up necessarily in terms of the fact that when we first meet her she is luring children into being kidnapped and also a lot of her feminine wiles and her glamour are part of how she manipulates people Mm -hmm. Um, so it's definitely kind of unfortunately quite linked into all of that Um, in a way it's like very cool and admirable and interesting that this otherwise very badass impressive intelligent woman who makes expeditions to the north who like builds igloos 
who is an Oxford scholar and involved in high-powered circles in a time mm. of high political tension, that she also has this very feminine aesthetic. Yeah, it's like she's just nailing everything. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's quite interesting. So although, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that this very impressive polymath is then the only really feminine character mm. that we get in the whole series. Yeah. In any case, as you said, her bath game is strong, so we can't have fault over that. <laughs> uh, so Lyra goes to have a bath, and this is uh, and is understandably impressed by by the luxuriance of it all. And I must say, this reminds me of any time, which I'm sure everyone can relate to, when you have a step up in washing experience. So either if you've been like, <laughs> oh yeah, that classic, <laughs> that classic step up in washing experience. We so it's a, it's a weird way to describe that. I couldn't work out how to phrase it, but like if you've been camping in a field for four days and you're oh, like, oh. I see. oh running water yeah, yeah I like yeah. that moment of I know this is different because she's going from like yeah. a shit bath to like an amazing bath with soft towels and yeah, nice yeah. smelling soap and stuff but yeah just that thing of like oh this is a very luxurious and impressive thing that I have yeah, yeah. Um, or even if you stay in a super fancy hotel and there's like a bath the size of an entire room ah yeah. so good glorious yeah so good okay so then we get a slightly interesting um little description during mm. bath time Pantalaimon is imitating Mrs. Coulter's demon. Uh, uh, again, demon episode. Demon <laughs> it's looming episode. on the horizon. Um, but I do think this is quite telling that perhaps when people are pretending to be like someone else, yeah. their demon manifests itself in the same way theirs does. Yeah. So in the same way that if you're trying to impress someone and you basically copycat, yeah. demons do the same so yeah, I don't know. It's, to it's... put it to put it intelligently, imitation is a sincerest form of flattery. But then also, my mm. notes just say, "No, <laughs> <laughs> bad to do." <laughs> don't all sell I yourself out. You, <laughs> you sell out, oh, Pan. God, I hate, I hate this bit. <laughs> you ingratiation hall. <laughs> so yeah, Lyra is clearly conflicted, and actually, this this is spelled out explicitly. So quote. Oh, this was confusing. Mrs. Coulter was so kind and wise, whereas Lyra had actually seen the master trying to poison Lord Azrael. Mm. Which of them did she owe the most obedience to? Is yeah, I get it. Yeah. I think we're clearer cut because we know we've had that exposition of Mrs. Coulter stealing a kid. And we've had yeah. the internal monologue and the discussion with the master and the librarian. But I can see from Lyra's point of view, Mrs. Coulter is clearly awesome, but she's got a longer history with the master. Yeah, and um, it's interesting because, as you say, you know, Mrs. Coulter's shiny and kind and clever and beautiful and smells nice and all that good stuff. But the master did try to poison her uncle, and it's kind of a like slightly mm. weird testament to her relationship with the master that she isn't more scared or wary or dismissive or her relationship with him that we know of doesn't seem to change before and after that event, which I actually find quite interesting. Yes, that's she true. almost sort of accepts that. Well, he probably has reasons. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? It's yeah, yeah it's yeah. quite odd. So it's, it's it's surprising that she can trust him still, basically, mm-hmm. and, and she still wants to give credence to what he's telling her to do. Um, so all in all, she's very confused, and she thinks about the alethiometer in her coat pocket, slung over a chair in the other room. So she hurries to get ready, and when she returns to the room, we get that quote: "Her coat still lay untouched, of course." And again, perhaps mm. I'm being untrusting, but I don't quite feel like that of course is very sincere sincere or doesn't make me feel very secure that the of course is really of course yeah somehow it casts some doubt over that yeah and i think lyra is supposed to be concerned a bit 
mm. there, right? Like, mm. yeah, the reason she looks towards her coat is that she's not entirely trusting of Coulter either. Yeah. Um, anyway, they go for lunch at the Royal Arctic Institute, mm-hmm. where Mrs. Coulter is one of only a few female members. Woo! Yay! Extended patriarchy. Female members, not just members. Female mm. members. No, no, no. Shit members. Uh, just marked as better. <laughs> 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 That'd be an interesting lens to look at all this wrong. Not, oh, not oh, how it works. You're a female scholar. <gasps> <laughs> well, just ignore all the cabbage. Cabbage is great. We love cabbage. <laughs> Mothballs, sensible, very sensible. Who wants their robes eaten? Um, they have a great chat about how bear liver is poisonous, and I love this sort of juxtaposition of we sort of start with Mrs. Coulter. Mm. Oh my God, you're an explorer. This is super great. Mm. Oh, you're hyper-feminine and understand that whole world of femininity and pretty things and perhaps beauty and charm. Yeah. And then the next thing we move back to is, oh, but you're still a badass. <laughs> you know, you're well, like, one of the few members of this Explorer Institute. Yeah. And you know that bear liver is poisonous, whereas seal liver, that's just great. Yes. Um, yeah, exactly. It's very, very cool. And it, yeah. I think there's an element maybe of, this isn't spilled out, this is my conjecture entirely, but... That would, to me, allay any of Lyra's concerns. Like, if this went on and on and on, yeah. and it was just feminine, forgive me, but bullshit, after mm. feminine bullshit, you know, more chintzy things, and it was just a parade of pretty clothes and parties, from everything we know about Lyra, she'd get bored instantly. Yeah. And I think there's an element of bringing it back to the Royal Arctic Institute instantly allays any concern potentially absolutely. from Lyra. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think that Mrs. Coulter has measured up Lyra. She's very clear to firstly ask about her life in Oxford. She knows what her interests are. She knows that she's going to, if she catches a rook, she's going to roast it. Mm. Um, and undoubtedly, she could have taken Lyra to lunch anywhere in London. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very calculated move to take her to the Royal Arctic Institute yeah. because she knows she has a fascination with the North and she knows she can, you know, be like, oh, bears, bears liver, don't do that. I've, I almost mm-hmm. feel like she might have ordered liver specifically just so she can go like, oh, this this liver's <laughs> fine, don't yeah. worry, but bears liver. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what so, that voice is. That's, no, I that's don't know what that voice is. <laughs> I've just read my own note here as well. Like, <laughs> So I've said, I'm conflicted about culture here. On the one hand, she's clearly a badass motherfucker. On the other, some kind of uber-femme Stepford housewives mannequin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Quite, quite a good description. Yeah, yeah it was a very good description. Um, they're surrounded by famous explorers of the north at this institute. Colonel Cabron and Dr. Broken Arrow, who is a scrailing, and this totally confirms your research and theory mm. from before, that um, scrailing is a term for Native Americans. Yeah. Um, so, so still a slightly racist term because it's not what yeah, they call yeah. themselves. But, but bang yeah. on on the research front. And then Lyra, sort of in an internal monologue, makes a bit of a comparison to Jordan scholars mm. and is clearly more awestruck by, you know, the explorer who knows about bear livers than the librarian at Jordan College or the chaplain, maybe, who knows yeah. about, you know, physics or experimental theology. So, yeah, I just think it's interesting, again, that sort of shift in her mental state of mm. previously Jordan was the, the shit and now it's kind of second fiddle to this life in London and the people she's seeing it. Yeah, and I guess as well it's almost as though she's gone from a world of like basically loads of dusty scholars and then Lord fucking Asriel who is like this badass and she absolutely idealises to then walking into a world where everyone's kind of Lord Asriel-esque yes, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, then yeah. it's like, oh my god, yeah. they're all amazing. Bet they don't have snow leopard demons. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> um, she then sees a bunch of famous objects mm-hmm. in the Institute Library. A spear that killed, I've just written, Jonah the Whale. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Like Grimsdor. Yeah, I think. not that. Um, 
a stone that was clutched in the hand of someone who froze to death with weird inscriptions on it, and a fire striker used by Lord Hudson on his journey to Van Tieren's land, which again is one of these sort of pulmonizations of the real world. Now, it would be possible to go into another rabbit hole here, but I'm not going to put us all through it. So, um, Van Tienen's land is basically a part of New France, which, oh, as okay. we learned in, in your tangent, um, yes. is basically a part of Canada. Mm-hmm. It's actually Broadly. north of Canada, so well north. And this guy is clearly a great explorer. And Lord Hudson, I'm assuming, is, again, a sort of pulmonization twist on the real Captain Hudson, mm-hmm. who actually charted the Hudson River and you know, basically explored that bit of Canada ah. on behalf of the British Empire. Oh, that's cool. He was English. So probably based based on um, an actual character. Yeah. And I would say as well, this reference that we get to an explorer who's found frozen to death in his tent, clutching a kind of stone with an indecipherable language on it. For people who know the series, I have a particular theory on this that we can't come back to for probably... Two years, do you reckon? <laughs> yeah. So I'm like just that. gonna put that there and then walk away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so thanks for your patience in advance. So Lyra's fully wooed and bursting with admiration for the explorers of the north, and then she's whisked off to go shopping. And despite the seeming mundanity of this, this is the most alien, exhilarating, dizzying, and surprising experience so far for Lyra, as it's just completely removed from her old realm of experience. <laughs> um, just completely alien. So at least the Art Institute, I guess in some sense, had some of the grandeur and some of the scholastic overlap mm. with Jordan, and this is just... What the fuck? What the fuck? Mirrors? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so she's got all of this novelty of trying and choosing things for herself, as opposed to accepting the hand-me-downs or the just purely practical clothes she's kind of overwhelmed by the choice the prettiness and most of all mrs coulter praising her gently suggesting and also just paying for Mm. everything for her as well so it's quite touching in a way to see this reaction from lyra but it's still quite sinister to have mrs coulter involved in all of this because Mm. i don't know it just feels like she's manipulating her to a greater or lesser extent and I can't help but feel that this whole day is kind of designed to be the equivalent of a massive vat of chocolate in a warehouse nice. for Lyra yeah. because, mm. yeah, she really is just completely caught up in it all. Yeah. So again, not to just use you as, hey, represent all women, but um, <laughs> do, do you sympathise with any of this? I don't know. Do, do um, girls reach an age typically where their mums will take them out on a shopping spree and it's like the first one where you get to choose the nice dress? Did you have that in your childhood? Uh, again, for me, because I did have a lot of stuff that was handed down from my brothers. Yeah. Yes. But as in, as in it was a special kind of event or like a treat? That's what, yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely a kind of special occasion. I know that won't be everyone's experience, but um, yeah. yeah, for me, it was a kind of a special thing. Mm. And especially probably around a similar time to Lyra when you're getting more ideas about what you do and don't want and mm. how you see yourself and all this kind of stuff. Mm. So Because again, I don't... I'll speak on behalf of all men. Fuck it. <laughs> uh, I don't think... Uh, I've just got no equivalent for this. Our boys don't go through that same thing, or at least uh. boys of my age when I was a boy. I mean, people, men my age, who were boys when I was a boy. <laughs> there you go, that time. Um, I'm so confused. There's no, there's no equivalent, I don't think. Really? Because, you never got well, excited I, about going clothes shopping? No. I remember f- my brother's I getting quite excited, I fucking hate going clothes shopping to this day. It's horrendous. Yeah, I know, but that might just be more you than yes, just no, like, no, of course, a male experience. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think there is the same backdrop, particularly. No, maybe, maybe not. like, 
maybe when you're a teenager, if you go down the goth route or grunger or emo or whatever yeah, else maybe. is like now the actual fashion. If it's something that you feel might be more about creating an identity for yourself than having an identity thrust upon you. So if you'd been forced to like wear all of your sister's hand-me-downs and you've been like (laughs) wearing lots of relatively feminine clothing or like Mm. relatively practical clothing that you didn't care about and Mm -hmm. then were taken out to go Mm -hmm. shopping, I'm sure you'd have a similar experience. Yes, maybe. Yeah. I don't think it's necessary. If it was getting rid of stuff that was just not me. Yeah. But I don't think boys typically have this kind of rite of passage and I don't know if most girls do either, but... I would assume Mm. this experience is more familiar to women than it would be to men. Because in boyhood, at least for people my age, this is not a thing. Yeah. This is certainly not a thing where you'd get taken shopping and you'd get to sort of reinvent yourself maybe as a young lady. Yeah. Um, Um, To be fair, we don't get much of the description of what Lyra actually gets any of the items that she buys. So there's maybe a question as to whether or not... It's the experience that's overwhelming rather than the actual things. Yeah, could be. It wouldn't necessarily be that consistent with her character to be like, oh, this blue skirt with the flowers on and the silver belt to go with it is the most amazing thing. Mm. You know, she's not very materialistic in that way, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, no, that's true. Or, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's just, just curious. Yeah. So they eventually go back to the flat and Lyra has another bath because Luxury. why not? Two bath day. So good. Um, And she doesn't even have to be caught or kind of (laughs) forcibly dunked. Uh, So this is quite a changed picture of her life in London Mm. versus Jordan. Mrs. Coulter then washes her hair and Lyra notes how gentle she is compared to Mrs. Lonsdale. And it's interesting that in many ways the only comparison point we have is Mrs. Lonsdale and Mrs. Coulter. Mm. Um, So they're quite an interesting juxtaposition and difference in the way that they show their affection Mm -hmm. towards Lyra because they do both care about her. Mm. Um, ostensibly ostensibly yeah mm. so we get this very interesting moment whilst uh, Mrs Coulter is washing Lyra's hair Pantaliman watched with powerful curiosity until Mrs Coulter looked at him and he knew what she meant and turned away averting his eyes modestly from these feminine mysteries as the golden monkey was doing he had never had to look away from Lyra before mm. what the fuck is this all mm. about not the best I don't know what I don't know what this means. What do you mean? I don't know what this means. As in, how do you interpret this? I interpret this as Pan is male. Yeah. And in the same way that men aren't invited into women's bathrooms, I, um, <laughs> that there's a degree of privacy around. I, I would guess. Uh, well, obviously hygiene, but like doing makeup, making yourself look pretty, perhaps making yourself look attractive. I think there's surely washing your hair. Yeah. Wait, is that why you always look away from me washing my hair? Yeah. Oh, okay. My eyes. <laughs> okay. Um, is that a feminine mystery? <laughs> it's very feminine and mysterious. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I interpret basically just interpret it as that. Yeah, I like, mean, very I... very old fashioned, maybe like almost like men in the early nineteen hundreds. I don't know, women going away to powder their noses and shit like that. I know that's a euphemism for going for a dump, but like, <laughs> 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 but you know what I mean. Like that, I've definitely come across this air of. I don't know, you men piss, piss yeah. off and wait out there while we make ourselves look yeah, nice. But, and you're not allowed to see this process because it's supposed to be a mystery. But Pat Lyman isn't a man. He's, a, he's male, though, and I assume he's it's He's a male aspect that. of Lyra, though. Yeah, that I don't get. The link to the demon, oh no, that's that's confusing as hell. But my interpretation of this is simply that the male gaze, hmm, yeah. literally embodied by Pat Lyman, is not welcome here. So it's interesting because like the implication is clearly that because he's never had to do this before and what I read into that is that you know she's coming nearer to the point of puberty and she's losing some of that she's getting some of that self-consciousness potentially maybe I also don't think anyone in her experience would have 
enforced that kind of social contract. And Mrs. Lonsdale wouldn't have had, you know, reservations about feminine wiles and stuff, because she wasn't exactly doing this kind of thing with Lyra. Maybe not. I imagine, or if you extend the scene to something else, like Lyra doing her makeup, even even as like a sort of child getting getting ready to look nice at a party, yeah. it could be the same kind of thing where it's like Pan, bugger off! You're not supposed to see how women make themselves look. But beautiful. it's but Pan's not a man, and Pan is like part of Lyra, so Pan yes. has the same feelings as Lyra no, has. I, know, yeah, I think yeah. a lot of the cultural stuff around like yeah. men not being allowed to see it is because men are assumed to be attracted to, yes, to women yes, in general, yes. and therefore then it's a kind of suspiciousness or mysteriousness around mm-hmm. that. But Pan isn't attracted to Lyra. No, no, no. Yeah, and, I, and would the, the, a male yeah. demon yeah. would a male demon be attracted to a female human? I don't, don't know. know. And also, like, like would stump <laughs> <laughs> more into it. <laughs> and also, would a female demon do the same for a, a man, or would a female demon do the same thing for a female if it's a same-sex demon? I don't thing? know. The demon link is the confusing bit. I, I get, I get the distinction between like the femininity and basically male presence not being welcome. The fact that the male presence is like part of your personality. Yeah. That's just fucking awkward, isn't it? It's confusing. It's like if you couldn't look at yourself in the mirror while you're doing your makeup. Exactly. (laughs) Or my consciousness couldn't. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I can't actually focus on what I'm doing here. It's very confusing. Um, So, Mr. Coleman, we have questions. Many. The more important bit, though, is that he had never had to look away from Lyra before. Yes. And Mrs. Coulter is driving a wedge between them. Yes, um, that's true. And in some senses, I think potentially with, within the remainder of this chapter, it's almost a good thing. Mm. Certainly for later in the book, no spoilers, but that Pan isn't quite so like wrapped up and trusting of Mrs. Coulter mm. ends up serving Lyra's interest. Yeah. And I think a part of that is because he's treated as other and separate. Yes, that's actually really interesting. He's alienated. Point. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't respond brilliantly to that. No. Which ultimately is a good thing. Yeah. So Lyra then gets ready for bed, and we see some beautiful descriptions of her new home. We get soft, gentle, pretty flowers, sheepskin, cosy, warm, little, new. What enchanting. is a scalloped hem? A scalloped hem is kind of <laughs> a. Uh, like I'm doing a wave motion, but like if you picture loads like of semicircles oh, okay. or U shapes interlinked uh, with each other. Okay. Frilly shit. Frilly shit, nice. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's an erratic change from her previous home when we get her old coat described as shabby and old um, and everything rings with this kind of comfort and cosiness and domesticity. Mm. And she doesn't go to bed and we get this Lyra lay stiffly, too tired to sleep, mm. too enchanted to question anything. Mmm, <sighs> enchanted. Ominous, yeah. ominous. Yeah, very Do you good. think enchanted is an intentional... I don't think it's anything to do with actual magic. But I do think it's a fantastic word to use to describe her whole yeah. state of mind. So I do question the uh, possible presence of the M word reading this mm. through again. But it's an interesting Possibly. one. Possibly. Yeah. Who, who knows? There is more magic in Lyra's world than ours. Mm. Um, yeah. So, um, before falling asleep, though, Pan reminds Lyra about the alethiometer and mm-hmm. they decide to check it before going to bed or at least look at it. I want to read this whole description because it is, as we've already said, it's one of the key bonus items um, <laughs> to collect along your way. Um, and it's a huge power-up for Lyra <laughs> as a character from here on. So, it lay heavily in her hands, the crystal face gleaming, the brass body exquisitely machined. It was very like a clock or a compass, for there were hands pointing to places around the dial. But instead of the hours or the points of the compass, there were several little pictures, each of them painted with extraordinary precision as if on ivory with the finest and slenderest sable brush. 
She turned the dial around to look at them all. There was an anchor, an hourglass surmounted by a skull, a bull, a beehive, 36 altogether, and she couldn't even guess what they meant. So it's clearly quite an ornate and beautiful object. Mm. Um, the 36 symbols are highly meaningful, <laughs> and we will leave that there. <laughs> it also has three wheels, mm-hmm. with which the short hands can basically be moved to point at any of the different pictures. Yeah. And a fourth hand, and I didn't really pick up on this when I first read it through, but I will add emphasis here, and then, again, no spoilers. <laughs> it's made of a different metal. Yes. That's a different colour to the other hands. Yeah. It moves around independently, a bit like a compass needle, but well, without it, actually coming to rest. It moves where it wants to. Does it say that? Interesting. Yeah. Oh, interesting. But yeah, it doesn't come to rest, so it's not like literally a compass needle pointing north. It, it yeah. wanders around, but in the same kind of motion uh, that a compass needle has when it's sort of spun around. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so there's the alethiometer. Pretty important thing. I would love to hold this. It'd be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I could have any object, as we said in our kind of Ugh. intro episode, <sighs> definitely this, definitely it's this. It's good, it's good. It's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we get this amazing image of Lyra with the lamplight shining on her, looking down at this, and then Pantalaimon in mouse form with his little paws up mm. against the crystal, gazing down, trying to get a closer look, and just very powerfully curious about what this object could be and trying to work it out. So they spend some time clicking around in different symbols and just playing around with it, basically. And Pan then confirms that he remembers that meter means measure from a lesson with the chaplain. The chaplain in in this world is the head of the laboratory, so he's kind of like a chief scientist, I suppose. But neither of them are any the wiser about what this instrument is actually for or why they've been given it, basically, or even how to use it. So they speculate about what the master could have meant about Lord Asriel. Pan suggests that it might be that they have to keep it safe to give to him. But Lyra then says, But the master was going to poison him. Perhaps it's the opposite. Perhaps he was going to say, don't give it to him. No, Pantalaimon says. It was her we had to keep it safe from. There was a soft knock on the door. So it's very interesting that they had these different perspectives and they're clearly wildly speculating about what they should and shouldn't be doing. But as we see then, Pan is interrupted by Mrs. Coulter, softly warning Lyra to put the light out before their long day tomorrow. Um, she doesn't open the door, mm. but Lyra quickly thrusts the alethiometer under the blankets. Um, and then once Mrs. Coulter's gone and she said goodnight a second time, Lyra snuggles down to sleep, but not before tucking the alethiometer away underneath her pillow, just in case. Mm. And that brings us to the end yeah. of this chapter. Quite like oh. this chapter. Yeah, I really do. I really this, do. Yeah, I think the previous ones were so good, but they, I don't know, they felt they felt slightly harder to cover in, in a sense because they bounce from yeah. like one set of character stuff interactions with one group of people to another group yeah. to another group of people. Yeah. yeah it, whereas this one is more directional. Yes. And it's all about Mrs. Coulter and this new world in quite a rich level of detail, but relatively like succinct. And one thing just builds on the other, builds on the other, builds on the other, rather than the breadth we've had in previous chapters yeah. where we just sort of bounce from one different aspect of Lyra's life to another. This seems to be more additive than just like exploring sideways. Yeah. And I definitely feel as well we've got the momentum now uh, that's really pushing Lyra and her experiences forward. Mm-hmm. So I think as well a lot of the other chapters to come I am really excited to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I do think it's just oh, I don't know. I don't know how much of this is just my understanding of, of the rest of the series informing this. 
but it doesn't feel like a very comfortable chapter because we know as a reader more than Lyra in this situation Mm. and so there's always a bit of a discord about the fact that she's getting very comfortable with the character that we know um, Mm -hmm. is a kidnapper. Although interestingly my little note at the end here is like so far, this is the kind of the end of the comfortable bit of the book. <laughs> but I mean, I meant from Lyra's perspective. Yes. Um, from yeah. here on, like we start bursting into a more dangerous and complex mm. world. Mm. Whereas at least from Lyra's perspective inside her head, currently things are fine. There's this kernel of doubt about Mrs. Coulter. Yeah. There's all the intrigue of the Master and Lord Ezreal, but it's not really affecting her directly. Yeah. And as far as she can tell, life's just super awesome. Mm. Even if there's a nugget of doubt in there somewhere. Yeah. So what, what do we what do we think of Mrs. Coulter? Yeah, I was about to ask you the same thing. So I think she's great. I think you can tell from my reactions about the chapter. Num- number <laughs> one really fan. Big fan. fan. Um, there's just so much about her that I find deeply chilling. Mm. Um, Chilling's a good word, yeah. Yeah. I think she is a master manipulator. Mm. And I think she's very calculated throughout this chapter. She is a fascinating character. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait to get to more about her motivations and her kind of ultimate goals uh, within all of this because I think she's a really really amazingly written character but for now it's just chills and Mm. ick and all of that she's badass though I totally agree with all that now I still think that as a kid and I I don't mm, I wonder if this is an indication of maybe the quality of Pullman's writing but I think I was slightly taken in by Mrs. Coulter I know Uh, that she was involved with like taking Tony Macarius. Yeah. But I think there was an element when I was reading it as a as a boy of sort of dismissing that mm. and wanting to trust her because she's cool and attractive. Yeah. And you know, she's I I think I think there was an element when I first read this of me being like, well, maybe there's some good motivation for her taking the kids. That's probably fine. Yeah, I definitely think I had the same thing as well. Yeah. Uh, up until this point, I yeah. should say that the following chapters maybe take you down a different yes. route maybe they don't yeah. maybe she is super great and it's, um, it's, di- it's difficult not to it's always difficult to read things with a fresh perspective when you've read this series so many times yeah, but yeah. yeah she's definitely a very very interesting character mm. so yeah excited to find out more yeah well I think that brings us to the end of this episode of the Dark Material podcast thanks for joining us if you're not ready to step back into your own world yet please visit our website at thedarkmaterialpodcast.com you can also hit us up on your Lodestone Resonators through Facebook at The Dark Material Podcast and Twitter at Dark Material Pod. Or if you want to cut through to our world directly with questions or comments or pronunciations of 13th century French, we are also available at thedarkmaterialpodcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying The Dark Material Podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. It helps other fans of his Dark Materials find the show. A special thanks to Jamin Persaud for the music on the Dark Material podcast. You can find him at Karma Roulette on Instagram. We'll see you next time for Chapter 5, The Cocktail Party. And until then, don't forget to tell them stories. <laughs> <laughs>